So, we're carrying on. We're actually finishing our series in Jonah today before we start on Nahum next week. And uh, so I'm going to read Jonah 4, verses 1 to 11. But it, sorry, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Thus is the word of the Lord. And so, the book of Jonah ends with a question. So before we jump into that, let's, let's begin here. There, probably one of the greater novels probably ever written, I think in the English language anyway, um, is by a woman named Charlotte Bronte, and it's called Jane Eyre. And I won't go into the detail of the whole book, because it's, if you know anything about the Bronte sisters, like these girls are really good at gruesome, torturous love stories. Don't go into them expecting Jane Austen. It's not quite what you're going to get. It's a little different. And in this story, it's an autobiography of Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre is telling the story of her life. And while I can't get into everything, I will say this. There's a point at which she reflects on her younger self. And she's thinking about how her eventual husband, a man, did I just spoil a 200-year-old book? I'm sorry. Her eventual husband, Mr. Rochester, she, she loves him and she's, she's passionate about him. But looking back on this, she realizes that that relationship at that time wasn't healthy. And here is what she says. My future husband was becoming to me my whole world, and more than the world, almost my hope of heaven. He stood between me and every thought of religion as an eclipse intervenes between man and the broad sun. I could not in those days see God for his creature, of whom I had made an idol. And Bronte gives us there a pretty good working definition of idolatry. Idolatry is what happens when you expect anything other than God to give you what only God can give you. Right? And Jane Eyre had made, in that time, an idol of Mr. Rochester because she so coveted his looks, his attention, his love, that if she sat in the, in the light of his attention, she felt like she had purpose and she had meaning. But if he didn't love her, then everything was not. And that is a problem. <laughs> that's, a, that's an idolatrous relationship. And every time... We do similar things. See, we do this in our lives all the time. Anytime you've made your identity your career. And I know we say that often, people think it's flippant, like it's just something we say. No, no. 
I have been around a, friend of, a good friend of mine since high school, just got laid off after 28 years in the same job. Not a Christian. And I assure you, it hammers his identity. Hammers it. Because he was not just a worker. He was somebody, that was his job. That's what he did. And when that is ripped from him, he's now wondering, who am I if I'm not this? And he's struggling with that. And we do it all the time. And it's not just in our careers. We've put our identity in our children. Stay-at-home moms, it's hard for you. Because one day, we, we homeschool our kids. One day, our kids will not be in the house. Where is the identity of Sarah if it's not in being a stay-at-home a homeschooling mom? Where's the identity in Carl if, he gets his, if something happens and I cannot be a pastor? Where do I get my value if right now I feel like I am valuable to the world because of a service I can provide? Where do I get my peace if I have no money? Where do I get my salvation? See, so many Christians, we can slip into this where we even think we feel, and I understand feelings, but we feel more saved when we're serving, right? You feel more certain that you're a Christian when you're giving well and you're really helping the church and you're praying for people. And that's good, right? These are all good things. Children are good. Careers are good. Serving the church is good. Money is good. But when it becomes, a, it goes from being a good thing to an ultimate thing, we have a problem. And every time we choose something other than God and say, that is our peace, Mr. Rochester, our money, whatever it is, imagine your heart slowly gets ossified or it becomes petrified, maybe is a better word. It becomes like rock, stone. And every time you trust something else to do, what only God can do, a layer of stone, imagine, is being layered on top of it over and over. So by the time God comes to us and saves us, he then needs to go about the work of breaking it free and undoing that work, unpetrifying, if that's a word. And uh, there's this wonderful quote, though it's not, quite per it's not a perfect analogy, so don't press it. But when Michelangelo once said, you know, when I'm as a sculptor, I don't create the sculpture. It's already there somehow in the mind of God or in reality in the slab of marble. My job is to free it, is to go in and take a chisel and free the thing that has already been implanted in there by God. Now he's talking symbolically and artistically. But if we use that similar idea, we see God doing something similar in us. He is taking our idolatrous hearts, and you're going to see that Jonah's biggest problem here is idolatry. And he's slowly, but not always slowly, working at it. And the, the process of sculpting, of cracking some, some stone and making something beautiful from it, can be a number of things. So for instance, you could have Mount Rushmore. And Mount Rushmore, it took 6,000 pounds of dynamite just to make George Washington's face. Okay, Just one face. If it was, I don't know if Teddy Roosevelt's glasses required more dynamite. But it's incredible. Or is that just a monocle? I think it's just a monocle. Anyway, sorry, side note. But you see, sometimes the sculpting work requires explosive and devastating work. So sometimes the idols are such that God needs to blow it off. And it's painful. Other times, it's, the, and that took 14 years to make. Other times, it's more like Michelangelo's David. That takes three years only to make. And although, yes, there's hard work involved, of course, a lot of it is fine work. It's chisel, it's sanding, if you call it sanding, what you do, and polishing, smoothing. And so, when, although in, so in the book of Jonah, what you're seeing is God working on an idolater. He's working on a man whose heart is not God's, not entirely. And he's showing this incredible patience, but relentlessness as well. He is pursuing Jonah. He won't let him out. And we begin to see in this passage, in the whole book, but in this chapter, how God sets about freeing us from our idols. And when we do that, we see he does things, not just to Jonah, but to all of us too. And we'll go through as, I'll do as quickly as I can. He exposes our idols. 
He breaks the idols, and then he replaces the idols. Okay? So let's look and see what he does here. So first, when we approach Jonah, if you have been used to approaching the book of Jonah as if Jonah is just a grown man having a temper tantrum, then you will never get anything out of this book. One of the keys about the Bible, about any literature really, but especially the Bible, if you approach it with an air of superiority to the people in it, you're never going to learn from it. You're going to always think you're better than Jonah, and he is just there to remind you not to be an idiot. But that's not the case. Jonah is not a temper tantrum little boy. He is a man having an actual severe problem, a severe existential crisis here. And I'm going to walk you through why he, we see it playing his day. And we know what his problem is. We know it's not just hatred, and we'll talk specifically in a minute. But we know why, that it is idolatry. And the reason you know is by what he says in verse 4 or verse 3. He's, he's now seen uh, Nineveh is, is, is shown mercy. And his response is, Therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. An idol is a thing that without it, you think you cannot live. If you lose this thing, think about your life. What is the one thing that if it was taken from you, a dear, good, precious thing, but if it's taken from you, you'd say, I don't know if I can go on. That is the thing that you have made God in your life. And that can be a very good thing. Our children are good. We should love our kids, of course. But if your kids are your God, you're going to be destroyed when they leave you, either by their choice or by some tragedy. So, we have, so when Jonah says, I'd rather die than be in this world, he is telling us something is more meaningful to him than God. He has lost something that is so important to him that he'd rather die than live without it. So it's an idolatry problem right off the start. We, it's very clear. And what is this God? Jonah, and we'll talk a lot more detail, he cannot conceive, he can't justify in his head, he can't reconcile that there is a God who could be just to him and to Israel and to sin, to punish sin, and be merciful. God cannot be both. You cannot be merciful to my enemy, God, and claim that you're being good to me. It can't be both. He can't understand how those two can be reconciled. And it's far more. Because, you see, I often hear people say Jonah's biggest problem is his hatred of Nineveh. It's actually not. That's not his biggest problem. That's a sub, that's, that's, it's a byproduct of a far deeper problem, which is his pride. And here's how we know it. Is Jonah liked the rest of Israel at the time, and certainly by the time Jesus comes, as you're going to see with a parable Jesus uses, was under the impression that not only were they the chosen people of God, but they were the only ones deserving of God's grace and mercy. And this is why the prophets start coming. If you know the chronology of the Bible, you begin to see God really ramps up the message through the prophets saying, no, no, God is coming for the Gentiles, the Gentiles, the Gentiles, and it grows and it ramps up until Christ comes and, and well beyond. And Jonah looks and says, you know, we are the chosen people of God. And you still see, as I still have friends uh, who are Jewish and I've spoken to them before, not recently, but before, and it's amazing. They still feel, yes, we're chosen, but we've suffered for the right. We have suffered for the mercy we have. We are the ones, yes, God chose us freely, sure, but he has beaten us on the anvil of the wilderness. We have been the kicking boy of the world. We have suffered for this covenant just as God has suffered for the covenant. And so mercy is something God gives graciously, sure, but we have suffered. That's part of it. We, we deserve this salvation. We deserve his mercy. The rest of the world, not so much. Many people, not everybody, every Jew, of course. And we know that Jonah is thinking this way because of something, well, the way he's behaving. But you know what he's doing? He's basically behaving like those, uh, the workers in the parable of the uh, laborers in the vineyards, Matthew 20. And if you don't know it, I'll very quickly summarize it. 
there's a, a master of a house, and he's going about to get workers to work in the vineyard, to bring in the harvest. And he starts out in the morning, and, and they bring in workers in the morning, and they agree, hey, you're going to work all day, and we're going to pay you a, day, a, wa- a day's wage. And they agree. It's fine. But then he goes up a couple other times and brings more workers in, and he pays them the same wage, even though they're working less time. So when at the very end, when it comes time to paying them here, uh, they get upset, right? And Because uh, they're thinking, why are these guys getting paid the same when they haven't worked for it? They haven't earned this. Why are they getting the same pay? And the response of, well, through Jesus' mouth, but through the, the master of the house is this. But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing, no, doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge me my generosity? And it's a clear indictment of the Pharisee and the Jewish mind at the time of Jesus is saying, God is bringing in others and his mercy is for all. Do you begrudge them? You see that in our children. We have a lot of kids and as a result, if I show mercy to one, if I take one of them out for ice cream or, I, or if I buy them a Gatorade at golf, that's the key, right? If one of them comes home with a Gatorade pack, oh boy, they flaunt it, right? I got Gatorade. And they're very excited. And the other ones right away are like, how come he gets a Gatorade? Where's my Gatorade? And I often say this exact line, I say, are you upset that I'm good to your brother? Am I not, you, do you, are you lacking Gatorade? You need more electrolytes? Is your life so difficult? Uh, yeah. and, <laughs> and it sounds funny, but it's true. And we really struggle with this idea. And we know very clearly what's going on. And what Jonah has done here, and I'm going to explain it, is he has turned something good into something distorted. And I'll start, but before I get to it, let me use an example. Uh, I often use, uh, well, lots of things. But one of the, C.S. Lewis has a wonderful book called The Screwtape Letters. And in it, I've told it before, there's a senior tempter, a devil, an, uh, a demon named Screwtape. And he is advising his nephew, Wormwood, on how to distort and to drag a Christian, young Christian man away from the faith. And this Christian man is now in a position of trying to figure out, because in world history, he's at the time of the Second World War. And he's trying to figure out, where does my Christianity, how does it influence the war? Should I be fighting in the war? Should I be a pacifist? What should I do? So he's struggling with that. And Lewis puts in the mouth of Screwtape the most disturbing and most profound advice. Here's what he says. Whichever he adopts, your main task will be the same. Let him begin by treating the patriotism or the pacifism as part of his religion. Then, let him, under the influence of of partisan spirit, come to regard it as as the most important part. Then, quietly and gradually, nurse him onto the stage at which the religion becomes merely a part of the cause. I'll explain what's happening for Jonah and then how it works for us, because we've done this recently, all of us. So with Jonah, what's happening is his Jewish nationalism, which is good, an outgrowth of being a Christian, of a child of God, is to love your nation. We should love Canada. However, when that love for your nation, that nationalism, becomes your religion, that it's no longer that part of being a person of God is to be a good citizen of your country, but now it means if you're not a good citizen of your country, you're not even saved. See how it switches. And now let me use an example that we've all had recently that may sting, that's okay. I do this every week. Remember COVID? Remember COVID? It's still there. When COVID came, March 2020, 
We all started, if you're a Christian, thinking the same thing similarly. I think it was a noble effort. We saw a good part for a minute where we all started thinking, how does our Christianity inform this? What does Christianity, what does Scripture say about wearing a mask, being vaccinated, closing or not closing a church, whatever? And we start doing that work. And after, I don't know, some of us may be quicker than others, but days, weeks, months, we decided, okay, there may be different groups. You know, some camps say, no, our response should be avoid all masks, no vaccinations, no closing. Others said, let's embrace those things. It doesn't really matter which one you chose. Because what happened shortly after is that it wasn't, after a while, it was no longer that that's part of what you're, the outgrowth of your Christianity is to behave this way. It then very quickly became a marker of only exclusive Christianity, meaning if you don't agree, you're not even a Christian if you get vaccinated. I'm not so sure you're even a Christian if you want to stay open. People left this church because they wanted us to close right away. And I'm not saying yay or nay for either side. I'm saying, do you see what you've done? The enemy has done exactly what Lewis says. It started with you thinking, how do I become a good Christian in this situation, which is good. But then you said, now I have my idea, and if you don't agree with it, I'm not even sure if you're saved. Do you even care about your neighbor if you don't get vaccinated? Are you even a Christian? But if you don't get back, if you do, if, but if you do get vaccinated, are you just a sheep for Trudeau's, you know, whatever, whatever? You see what we've done? And the reason that this is a problem, and Jonah's doing the exact same thing, it's not new. It's not new. And the reason this is a problem is because we need to remember when Joshua, in chapter 5 of his book, meets that army, the general of the armies of God, he asks the most human question, are you for us or for our enemy? And what is the response in chapter, let's put it up on the screen. No. Isn't that interesting? No. He doesn't say, no. No. I, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. God, see why he says no? The question is wrong, Joshua. You're under the impression that because your biggest concern is enemy or not, that, my big, that God's biggest concern, that God exists to be your cheerleader. That God exists that you can then appropriate him and say, see, anti-vaxxer. See, vaxxer, or whatever. Pick a, pick a topic. It doesn't really matter. And God is saying, I have God as sides. God is God. But he is not to be used for you in your game of nationalism, of vaccinations, of anything else. God stands above it. And this, the reason this is so important, Augustine, and I'll, this is the last quote for a while, perfectly captures what idolatry is. Idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that is meant to be worshipped. Your money, your career, your political choices are good. You have, to, you, have, well, you, have to, you have to make good choices with them. They're important. But those things are to be used, not to be worshipped. And the moment you say salvation is based on your choice of whether we stay open or not, you have started to worship something, this idea of how to abide by the government's rules over salvation in Christ. Conversely, if you then use something that should be worship, God, and say, ah, but God is all for my party and not yours, you have begun to use something that should be worshipped. And that is a great warning. When God exposes our idols, he's saying very clearly, beware of using God rather than worshipping him. I'll stop with that one. I know I've angered enough people in the room. <laughs> it's, let's at least think about it, Okay. So he exposes the idols. And now the next six verses or so, from verse 5 to 10, he now breaks the idol. And this is all in the context of this story about the plant that God raises up and doesn't, uh, and then, excuse me, destroys. So 
The first thing he does is he asks Jonah a question. Is it good? Are you, is it right for you to be upset about this? I can't help but remember the question in Genesis 4 to Cain. Do you do well to be angry? Why are you angry, Cain? So he asks him this question. And the question, of course, is never to gain information. God doesn't require, he's not lacking information. The reason he's asking it is he is giving, providing this opportunity, this moment here of time, to say to Jonah, consider what you're doing. Why are you upset? Think about it. Don't get angry. Don't fly off the handle. Consider why you're thinking what you're thinking, feeling what you're feeling, and doing what you're doing. Jonah's first response, he responds later, but when the second time he's asked, but not this time, you'll notice the, very, the next thing right after the question says, he then left the city. He doesn't even entertain the question. He goes out of the city, and he sets up a, a booth or a shelter outside the city to watch Nineveh, Nineveh, I shouldn't laugh, but to watch Nineveh get crushed. That's what he's doing. And then what's interesting, you've ever noticed, it says he makes his shelter, and he sits in its shade. And the very next verse says, but God gave him a plant to give him shade. Why did he need a plant? He's already got shade. What's the point? Why does he need shade on, upon shade? And a lot of scholars will say there's a textual problem here. You see, the problem is an editor once upon a time uh, missed, he, he didn't have his coffee, he missed something. So as a result, he doesn't see the contradiction here, that there's, he doesn't need shade. He, doesn't, he missed the, a middle sentence, is probably missing. No, the problem isn't a textual one. The problem is a theological and spiritual one. Let me explain what's happening here. Jonah is upset with God, lacking peace, discontent. Forget God. I can't believe it. He's this sort of God. How could he show mercy to these people who are such enemies of his, of his people? He then steps out of the city and builds this shelter to watch the city get crushed. The and the booth is there to provide him comfort as he watches his enemy get killed. The booth is literally made by his pride and his anger. It's literally there. He tries to create a peace for himself. This is what he's doing. He's trying to create a comfortable place there. But without God, the best you can do in your, creating your own comfort for yourself is one rooted in pride, bitterness, and every other sin under the sun. And so he's there. And we know this is the way we're meant to see it because then God gives him a plant. And then after he gets the plant for the shade, what does it say Jonah does? He rejoiced exceedingly. Listen, why is it he's not happy in his own shade, but he's happy under the shade that God gives him mercifully? Because you cannot find peace outside of God's mercy. You'll continue to build a shelter, and it'll provide shade, but you'll always be hot. You'll always be miserable. And if you want to get really deep, and I don't have the time, the Hebrew is pretty impressive. Because it doesn't just say, and I don't even know where I am in my notes here, but it doesn't even, what it says is God, provide, God provided him the, the plant to save him from his discomfort, is what the English says. It's not what the Hebrew says. Hebrew literally says, he provided the shade, the plant, to, to Yeshua, to say it's a salvation, to Jesus him, from his ra in Hebrew, evil. It's not his discomfort only. But this is a moment, God is saying, in my time of mercy, just like the relenting of Nineveh gives them time to come to full repentance, but they don't. In this moment, Jonah, I'm providing you a moment, this shade, to allow you to get away from the evil you're seeking to do and you're doing in your heart. You have time here in this mercy to, to think and to repent about what you're doing. But what does Jonah do? It doesn't work. The plant withers. It says he pities the plant. In fact, the word for pity is Hebrew again. means uh, literally to have uh, tears in your eyes. So you're welling up, Jonah. You're emotional for this plant. And Jonah, of course, and then he does finally speak. He asks again, Are you, is it right that you're angry about this plant going away? And what does Jonah say? No. Oh, yes, it is very right. I deserve it. I, I should be this angry. And why doesn't Jonah see it? 
the time when he should be repenting, he doesn't realize this whole scene is being created to show him that he is Nineveh. Nineveh did not go seeking for God's mercy. Romans is very clear, everybody. I know we can have debates till the sun goes home, comes up and down. Romans, uh, Paul's very clear. He says it directly. He quotes the Old Testament. Not one human being seeks God. You may be looking for shade, but it's not God's shade. You're looking for any other shade you can find. And so Nineveh would not and could not repent unless the message of God came to them first. The message had to come in that way. And then in the shade of that repentance, from the, that, that call for mercy and repentance, they can repent. Jonah doesn't see that he there does not deserve the shade. He gets it. And in that moment, he is receiving the mercy that Nineveh is being shown. But he thinks he's deserved it. I'm a child of God. God, he has to protect me. So when it's taken away from him, then comes his fit again, to quote Macbeth. Then he gets angry again. How dare he? Jonah doesn't realize still that he needs that mercy. That if God doesn't provide him shade, there is no hope. He'll just keep building everything upon the foundation of his anger and his bitterness and his pride. And so what is happening here is we see God breaking idols the way only God can do it. You see, God is literally being the God that Jonah hates. Jonah says, you know, the problem with you, God, is you're merciful and slow to anger. Not realizing this is exactly what God is doing to Jonah. He's being slow. See what he does. If Jonah is a man made of stone, he is drilling into his heart, looking for a bedrock, looking for a foundation on which to build. And he goes deeper and he deeper. And he doesn't do it. See, he doesn't hammer Jonah. He could explode him. In some ways, he is exploding Jonah's worldview. But he doesn't mock him. He doesn't rebuke him. He's patient with Jonah. And so we see him here using the scalpel, you know, the chisel. The blows of the chisel still hurt. But he's slowly, patiently, relentlessly, though, chasing after Jonah. He's relentlessly chasing. He will not allow him to escape. God is committed to ridding us of all of our idols, with dynamite or a scalpel. So he breaks our idols. He exposes them, then he breaks them. Now he replaces them. The book ends with a question. Now, of course, anytime a biblical book or any book ends with a question, it means you're supposed to see that the question's for you. Right? You're, you're now expected to come alongside and say, well, what is, what's going on here? We don't see the end of the story for Jonah. We don't know how, patient, how much more patient God was, what the end result was. We can only speculate. But we do know we're put in that spot, and we have to wrestle now with the question of, who is this God who loves our enemies as much as us? Now, that's hard. And let me say something very modern, very, very happened just this week. Our prime minister is now being, getting divorced. And the amount of Christians I saw online mocking him and with these funny jokes saying, how come she can divorce him but the country can't? Now, it's funny, I get it. But this is a human being Christ died for. This is a man with a wife who is struggling. He is struggling. His children are certainly not doing well, I'm sure. Shouldn't we be not? Shouldn't we be better than the world here? Should we be praying for this man? And so I always wonder about that. I think, boy, how long have we now made God a conservative Christian in our context, Canadian conservative Christian? Here's a, Anne Lamott, if you don't know Anne Lamott, once said this, uh, I won't, uh, paraphrasing, said, if, if your God hates all the same people as you, you've got a problem. You know you've made your own God if he agrees with everything you're doing. One of the things I do with skeptics on the university campuses and any coffee shop I speak to them in is, Whoever your God is, if he has never challenged you, if he has never caused you to rethink something, he's not God. 
You've, only God who doesn't challenge you is the one you've made up for yourself. Because how could he challenge you? He'll just always pat you on the head and say, good job, keep going, well done. No, God is greater. He's so far beyond, surely he's going to push us. Surely we're going to have, all of us have moments to rethink our theology at times. And so, moving on from there. God loves Nineveh. And why does he love Nineveh? Why does he love the city? I won't go into detail. We covered this in Revelation. God loves everybody. The reason we see an emphasis on cities is because of this. God loves people. And where is the highest concentration of people? Cities. And where is it when people get together, their lives are so intertwined that they can do incredible good or incredible evil? And so God says, I love them. I love these people. Nineveh, Moscow, Putin, he loves them. And so he's there weeping for them, and then he adds to Jonah, I even love the cattle. Right? People are like, what does that mean? There's a lot of ink spilled about what that could mean. But this is at very least what we know it means. He loves his creation, and it's to be contrasted against Jonah's bitterness. Jonah is upset that his comfort is gone. God is saying, you, do, you love this. You, really, what you love, Jonah, is you. I love everyone, and you can't see it. Don't you see? That's why we're having a problem here. We have different perspectives about the world. And God loves the world. And Jonah's... So how do we get away? Let me end, end sort of here. Sort of, notice I said. How do, how do we... How does God free us from all of our idols? Not just this one Jonah's got, but we all have idols. How does, it, how does God do it? And the answer is actually in the verse that Jonah quotes, but quotes only partially. He quotes Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. Here's the full verse. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love and for thousands, uh, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, Jonah under sees a tension here that he cannot reconcile. God, I like that you're just and you're not going to clear the guilty, but that's exactly what you're doing here at Nineveh. How can you be just? How can you not clear the guilty but also forgive sin? You can't do both. And the answer, of course, comes for us. We have the benefit of seeing the cross. Where on the cross, Christ dies and pays the full penalty, the full amount owing for human, human sin, past, present, and future. He pays it all. And so sin is not cleared. The guilty is not cleared. It is paid for in full. And yet, forgiveness is extended. And Jonah, he's at a spot where he could have seen this. Other guys and gals in the Bible see this in the Old Testament. But he's not there, maybe not yet, maybe he gets there later. But if the God who bore our sin graciously, not because you deserved it, and then extended mercy to you, if that's the God you worship, then there should be no room in your life to not forgive your enemy. And when you find you cannot forgive Trudeau, cannot forgive the DMV, I don't know, I'm, I don't know why I say the DMV, <laughs> Whatever. Think of something. If you cannot forgive something, then may I say humbly, it's because you and I have forgotten the gospel in that moment. In that moment, we have an idol. Our anger is more important to us to hang on to it than it is to forgive. And for that moment, we have to be reminded and brought back into it. And I'm going to use an example to close an illustration I got from another pastor, so it's not mine, but it's the best one I can think of. This is the key. If we are ever going to be a people who can actually forgive our enemies and have the idol smashed, this is what needs, I think, to happen. Imagine I have a really nice gray suit, a beautiful gray suit. And uh, who, I don't know who's my size. I can't just pick anyone here. Um, I don't, I, that's, now, now if I pick somebody, they're going to say, what, you think I'm fat, Carl? So I can't just pick a name. 
So I won't do that. But let's just pick a name. Let's, I don't have to pick a name now. Somebody's not in this church. Um, Hezekiah. There's no Hezekiahs here. And my friend Hezekiah comes to me and says, Carl, listen, I don't have a suit, but I've got a job interview. Could I borrow your suit this week? I'm like, yeah, Hezekiah, go right ahead. A week later, Hezekiah shows up to me looking like this. He's destroyed my suit. He's ruined the suit. It's been torn to pieces. I don't know what happened at that job interview, but something happened <laughs> that made it very difficult for Hezekiah. When he stands in front of me, how, what, by what power can I forgive him? How can I, what determines whether I forgive him or make him buy me a new suit? It's very simple, my wealth. Because if I have no other suits, if I'm like, gosh, that's my only suit, and I've got a funeral to do, and I a wedding, like in two days, I'm like, I don't have the money. I'm sorry, Hezekiah. I can't forgive you. You have to buy me the suit. You have to pay for it. I can't, I can't, I can't help you. That's what, but, but what if I have a, a closet full of suits? What if my closet is so full of suits? Then what I say to Hezekiah is, listen, it stinks, but I get it. Don't worry about it. I've got other suits. So that thing that allows me to forgive or not forgive is the, is the wealth, the stores of suits I have. Now, as a human being, when somebody wrongs you, be it Nineveh or a government or a neighbor or a spouse or a child, whatever it is, what determines whether you can forgive them or not? It's your wealth. This is what I mean. The reason Jonah cannot forgive Nineveh is because they have robbed him. And God in that moment, by forgiving, by showing them mercy, has robbed him of the only thing. It's my only suit. God, the only thing I hang my hat on, my identity is rooted in our relationship that is between you and me and our people. You cannot share that with others. If you do, what am I left? If Israel's not special to you, then what are we? And in fact, you know what he's saying? He's not saying if we're not special. He's saying if we're not more special to you than somebody else. That's the problem. Jonah cannot forgive Nineveh because if he does... If he shows mercy, then what does he have left? He's only got one suit. He's hung his identity on this idol he has made of God. If you cannot forgive somebody who slanders you, who wrongs you as a child, if you're a person who went to church and cannot come back to church because a pastor was mean to you or something, we sympathize. Of course, we mourn with those who mourn. But the problem with you and I is we don't have anything left. If somebody wrongs me and I can't stand it until I've, I've meted out justice, what I'm saying is, in robbing me of my dignity, you've robbed me of all I have. What am I if you've robbed me of dignity? I must have honor. I must. And so you, you can't forgive. But what if you have Christ? What if you have a God who says, you are so much more infinitely valuable than anyone's opinion here? You're so much more infinitely firm and at peace in me than you'll ever be in anything else. Then when somebody comes and slanders a pastor or you, you know what you say? You say, I'm, I'm, I'm upset that you've done that, but my identity is firm. You cannot rob it from me because I have a closet full of suits that Christ has bought for me. And so what Jonah doesn't have, and bless him, I'm not condemning him because we're not much better most of the time. He doesn't yet understand the suits that he's waiting for him in Christ. If you're a Christian, let's start working on this. It's going to be painful. God will explode these idols out of us sometimes, sometimes chisel them quietly. But we need to get to a place of seeing our wealth in him. Nothing can rob you of who you are. Nothing. No matter how much indignity the world throws at you, you cannot be robbed of what you have in Christ. And, if, and aren't you tired? Aren't you tired of being outraged by the next thing the media, Christian or otherwise, tells you you should be outraged by? 
Aren't you mad that now all of a sudden we have to hate the world because of gender issues? Which, listen, we have to deal with those issues. They're terrible. And we have to address them. But aren't you tired of thinking, oh my goodness, the church is going to crumble if we ever succumb to this? Listen, friends, the church is not going to crumble till Christ says so. It's our job to remain faithful if we can. But we can have peace knowing that this church will close when Christ says And if he has made it so the gates of hell won't prevail against it, I don't have to worry about the agenda of some lobby group or somebody who drives by and, and, you know, vandalizes the church because they don't like Christians. Boy, what can you do? I have a suit full of, I have a closet full of suits. Take what, say what you want. We have peace that we can have. And if you're not a Christian and you're a skeptic, then I say, aren't you tired of being moved around? One week it's BLM you're supposed to be worried about. Next week it's this. Next week it's that. Next week it's this. Don't you want peace? Don't you want to not be moved around by the silliness of the world? It's only in Christ. You'll build your own shade. You'll try to build a shade in one of these agendas or not. And what will happen is you'll th- it'll prize you shade for a second, but it'll burn you eventually. Until mercy comes from God, until you accept it, you're going to always be demanding somebody pay for your lost suit. Come to Christ. There's no other option. Let's pray.